Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. What's happened? Mr. Homeland Security apparently went around and told all the people he liked that he's leaving for a better world. Miami Beach. Movie star's nanny left. And the Italian boyfriend. I'm surprised she didn't go with. Do we know how many he took? He took mostly women. The whole soccer team. Except the goalie. Welcome to Station Eleven, the podcast. A show that dives deep into the HBO Max limited series, Station Eleven. Every episode will be joined by a member of the cast or crew of the show and reveal special behind-the-scenes insights into production and the process. I'm Patrick Somerville, creator, showrunner, and executive producer of Station Eleven. And I'm Angelica Jade Bastian. I'm a writer and pop culture critic for New York Magazine's site, Vulture. Each week, Patrick and I are going to sit down with the many collaborators and artists from the TV series and talk about storylines, themes, and characters. We're also going to talk about what it's like to tell a story about a pandemic while living in an actual pandemic. Today, we're joined by Station Eleven's production designer, Ruth Ammon, and breaking down episode five, the Severn City Airport. With Station Eleven, everything just appeared to me as I was reading it. And that's how you know you want to be part of a project. When you read something and you instantly get excited and you instantly start feeling and dreaming things. And like, I never had to work my way through any of those scripts. Patrick, I've got a lot of questions about this episode. You made me feel too many things, man. I'm already (laughs) feeling enough. A lot of feelings out there. We got to feel them all. Yeah. First, let's remind our listeners of some of the really intense moments and honestly weird shit that went down in this wild but very isolated Severn City Airport in this wonderful episode. Yeah, we could. Can we do the whole podcast about Agent Nick Roker? (laughs) Because he is... By far my favorite, or should I say Jerry Mercer, the custodian. <laughs> I wanted to have t-shirts printed that said, fuck Jerry Mercer, uh, but I was talked out of it, uh, probably rightly so. And I do have a t-shirt that's just that little custodian ID badge over <laughs> over, <laughs> over my chest. Oh, I, I love it. I, I think that's very believable, though. Of course, somebody is going to pretend to have authority they don't have when the world goes tits up in order to have some power over people. It's not... Surprising. Well, speaking of that, you know, pretending to have power that you don't have, it's sort of also what happens with Clark, who we know a little bit from one and three, Elizabeth, who we know a little bit from one and three, and 
a young boy we're just getting to know in this episode, who is Tyler, Arthur's son. Bombshell, bitches. Tyler is David, is the prophet. Mind blown. Also, it's just really fascinating to me how he relates to people and how we kind of see the seeds of that with him as a kid and trying to figure these things out and maybe not the healthiest way, but the only way he really knows how. I always think too, like when you meet a person who's an asshole, uh, it's really hard to sympathize with them. That's true. uh, Because they're doing asshole things. But as is true in the show over and over again, what happened to kids when they were kids, it matters. This was a story challenge too, because like you meet the bad guy and then it's really hard to get over and be like, okay, now we're going to talk about why we should feel feelings of sympathy for the bad guy. But especially after what happened at the end of 104. So I think we needed this kind of secret origin story of Tyler Trojan horsed into the story of Clark and Elizabeth in order to even have enough space. So when we come back, going deeper into our story, we have a multidimensional Tyler to work with. Can you talk a little bit about crafting this, well, I'll use your term, origin story for Tyler and what seeds you know you needed to see kind of planted in order to kind of bridge the gap between his past and his present? Like in the book, the loss of Arthur hurt people. The presence of Arthur actually hurt a bunch of people too. I mean, we, we meet Arthur and he's a great guy, but I think it was important to start painting a more complicated picture and start getting at some of the elements of fame that are interesting about the book too. Like, what's it like to be a divorcee when the husband is more famous than you? You get treated like shit by the media. And so with Elizabeth, who ostensibly was sort of the other woman entering into a narrative and then was displaced. There's some real damage happening to people. She's sort of picking up the pieces. How are you supposed to feel upon the death of a partner you once loved, but who betrayed you? Elizabeth is a fascinating example of a character who has a huge arc in the show. Caitlin Mm. Fitzgerald always was sort of entering after a chasm of some kind of time, finding her character again in a new place. But the distance Elizabeth goes in this episode, from beginning on that in that first class seat to the last frame of, of the show and, and the amazing performance she's giving at the end, I, I really think there's some spectacular work done by both her and David Wilmot here to just change, you know? I was like, damn, I do not like this woman. But then I softened to her very quickly because I the show was really good at showing like how much she has to deal with on so many levels. Like you say, as a public figure who's coming out of a divorce, but also as a mother who's contending with the memory of a father who was not as present as he should have been. There's a certain stripping away of layers of Elizabeth in the episode, her, uh, embodied by her entourage kind of disappearing. She's slowly mm. losing her privilege, but at the same time, shows the relief that one gets when they don't have to be famous anymore. Particularly in the scene with Tyler sitting at the Mm. Christmas party, which this is Caitlin and her very best. And Lucy Cherniak, the director of the episode, really the two of them collaborating and getting that character to a very nuanced place in terms of her generosity and becoming a mother. Yeah, definitely. But there's also Clark, who... I think we both connect with as a character um, for our own maybe messed up reasons. 
I love how David Wilmot performed this character. He's such on a razor's edge of sort of, he has a great bullshit detector. He's a good loyal friend, but he's a fucking asshole too sometimes. But every time he gets a little traction, this is what I love about Clark. Every time he kind of gets it together, he just self implodes. Mm. So nothing evidenced more than by the, the moment of him sort of discovering Jerry Mercer's con and his MDMA at the same time and going with, I'll just take some of these pills, even though I'm starting to see what's happening. But the poor Clark, but also Clark rises from the ashes and, and, and takes over a role he never has had in his life, which is number one, not number two. Definitely. And one thing that popped into my head just now is like there's beneath the surface of this episode, there's a lot of consideration about what we keep both from the past and our past selves and what we need to leave behind. And there's this really interesting moment between Tyler and Elizabeth where he talks about the last download on his device before his hotspot died was the wiki page for capitalism. Mm -hmm. And he's like, you know, says something to the effect of, should I just delete this? What if I just deleted this? And Elizabeth said something really interesting. We just rebuild it. <laughs> I'm curious about where that came from. Was it in the book or was this something of your own imagination? I think the the spirit of that idea was in the book, but I'm remembering a conversation in the writer's room. Mm. We were talking about the episode itself and like, what are we witnessing in five? We're witnessing the Etch-A-Sketch getting shaken and like, people just trying to invent a system of government for themselves, whether or not they know they're doing it. I think that line from Elizabeth kind of grew out of the cynicism there, which is sort of like, it's not so easy as to say, start over, go. To learn, for us to grow, I think we have to see how we did it wrong and why. It has to be some kind of informed group conversation to not do it intentionally. Now, as our pandemic's been going on, I just am like, I'm waiting to see all the all the same things get rebuilt in the wake of change. I hope we can intentionally try to go in different directions in some ways. That's actually a good note to transition into our talk with our amazing production designer, Ruth Ammon. Ruth Ammon has been in production design for more than three decades. She's helped create sets for shows like Heroes, Smash, Dirty John, and a personal favorite film of mine, Drop Dead Gorgeous, ladies. I am so happy to welcome you to the podcast. Well, thank you so much. It's really nice to be here. I do have to say, build worlds, not sets. Production design is a murky territory, and I think it would be cool so people can understand exactly the extent to which a brilliant production designer like Ruth's vision extends across a whole series. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, 
Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot Props, set decoration, location, and construction were all under her purview. So you're doing a lot, Ruth. You're very important to the world building of Station Eleven. And I'd really be curious to hear from you first, like what attracted you to being a part of this project? I was in Budapest working on another show and I knew that I wanted something very different in my life and wanted to work with just new faces, new energy. And um, I saw in some trade magazine that Patrick Somerville and Hiro Mirai were doing this show called Station Eleven. And I didn't even know what Station Eleven was. I just called my agent right away and said, I need to meet with these two people because both of them, I'd been following their work. And, you know, that's really the thing that's most exciting about any project is who is going to be leading it, who you're going to be working with. You know, we made that call happen. And then I learned about what Station Eleven was afterwards. Yeah, that's really high praise, though, Patrick. Someone was <laughs> like, damn, it. I got to work with this man. <laughs> yes, I do. I mean, I saw Maniac and Hero. I'd been, I said, it's crazy. I'd been chasing for a long time. And there's different ways when you read a script. You read a script and you see it the way, you know, it comes to your mind. But when you can associate personalities and different artists and people with a unique vision, that's what excites me because I don't want to do the same show every time. I want to keep moving in different directions and different ideas. Oh, definitely. And I think I can see why you'd be attracted to Station Eleven because it allows you to create the world how it is and also a world that you have so much room to play in visually in crafting how does an airport look after society has gone to ruin. I really want to hear about crafting two versions of an airport, really, because there's, you know, when they're first, the characters are first getting there to Severn Airport and kind of mulling about, and then everything starts to sink in as to what's actually happening beyond the realm of the airport. And you start to see things slowly shift and chairs be in places they weren't previously And things get a little bit grimier and more lived in, in a way that's kind of antithetical to how weird airports are in general. So I really want to hear your perspective on that and how you crafted that. Well, I would start by saying I absolutely love airports. Um, I (laughs) love airports. (laughs) It's the craziest thing. I love all those words that come with airport departure and jetways. And I just... It's like a city, and Mm. I love getting lost in that city. I frequently go early and (laughs) looking at people and say, where are they going? Who are they meeting? And it's just, it is its own community, even if it's a temporary one. So I was really psyched about creating this airport for Station 11 because, number one, it's in the Midwest, which I don't know makes me smile. It has some kind of (laughs) regional concessions as well as, you know, more franchises. But I just love that kind of local level of an airport, but yet there's a language that goes 
through all airports. Deciding what the airport would actually be took a lot of thought and a lot of pushing. Patrick and I were really together on this front in a big way because there was a terminal, a decommissioned terminal that had really just a month ago been turned into a film studio. So, you know, by all intents and purposes, when you looked at it, you're like, this is an airport. Why do we need more? But we actually built the entire airport from four different sites. Um, We used the infield for our gates area. We built our control tower on a soundstage. We used the apron at Pearson. We used the jetways there. We built our runway in Brantford, like another hour and a half away. (laughs) And then the atrium, which is the most important one of all, was at Ontario Science Centre. When we saw that atrium for the first time, there was actually a child's science exhibit there. And do you remember, Patrick, what they were exhibiting? It was like the Museum of Civilization, wasn't it? I mean... (laughs) Wasn't it called that? I remember pressing a button on a little thing and and uh, like a bunch of orchestral music came out. And it was one of those uncanny moments that we had so often, which was like, not we're in a pandemic, we're in a science center, we're making a museum, and there's a display right now about civilization where I can press a button and a bunch of music comes out and like, get rid of this and put our version in, but we're in the right spot. <laughs> that's what it felt like. Oh, that's surreal. It was completely surreal because this temporary exhibit was in the atrium. It was really hard for anyone to understand what they were looking at. And that's where I have to do my sales pitch. When the space isn't, you know, it's full of other people's uh, materials, it's really hard for a lot of people to see that this could be an airport. Like, can we believe it's an airport and have that vision? What was the most difficult aspect of bringing episode five to life. I think for a lot of people, like what you do is a little, like they understand maybe the parts, but not as a whole. So I'm really curious to kind of hear a challenge for someone with such vision. Every day is a challenge. (laughs) (laughs) But you know, one crazy challenge, I mean, this sounds crazy, is just getting that plane. We did some artwork on the plane, but getting that plane was just, so critical to all of us. And, you know, there's a lot of pressure. Can it be a smaller plane? Does it have to have the first class? Like, and we just really got very stubborn on that point. And the creatives got a little uppity on this one. Yes. But, and this <laughs> this is to the credit of our line producers, David Nixay and Claire Welland. They landed it. They knew that we wanted it bad. We felt we needed it to tell the story right. And it was impossible to get a dreamliner basically. And they had three weeks. And I kind of heard, this is impossible. And I was like, I believe in you. (laughs) That's what you said. You did. You're like, yeah, okay, go on. (laughs) But that's another unsung wing of making television is that Claire probably made a thousand phone calls to international airports, small airports company, and, and didn't take no for an answer for weeks and weeks and weeks. And then one day, something happens, and suddenly there's a 787 sitting on the runway outside our set, <laughs> and we're, we're ready to go shoot. <laughs> and I, I, you know, when I watch that, I just think how important that was that Elizabeth was separated by that iconic design that you know you're a privileged person, you're in this 
first class area that's so different from coach. And, Mm -hmm. you know, having traveled a lot in my life in every form possible, like that difference means something. And I think visually it really sold that idea very clearly and was really fun. Weird time to fly. Yeah. She's from Alpha Beta. Elizabeth. Elizabeth. Oh, she's she's a friend. Elizabeth. She mustn't have heard me. Can you talk a little bit about doing the work you need to do while navigating the early time of the pandemic? Well, yes. I guess, you know, the nice thing is, you know, I was isolated in basically a Chuck Taylor apartment. (laughs) It was like a Converse shoebox size apartment. And so I just worked all the time and just keep moving and keep communicating. So I would have like a set of art directors who would be developing concepts And then I'd also be on the road um, looking for locations, driving, and I would pull over maybe 10 times a day and look at my phone for, you know, to approve drawings on a little tiny iPhone because, you know, we really couldn't be in offices that long with so much scouting to do. I felt, and maybe only in retrospect, but I felt like I was the traveling symphony because I was creating. I was moving. There was nothing else I could do. I really didn't even cook. I mean, it was just being creative to survive and also to make this television show, but it all was very parallel. Mm, Definitely. One thing that I couldn't help but think about was just how important it seems for a director and the production designer to have like a some chemistry, some understanding. Can you talk a little bit about What's important about fostering a good relationship with both the director or showrunner, the main motherfucker in charge, basically? (laughs) Well, first you have to figure out who is the main motherfucker in charge. (laughs) (laughs) It's not not always clear. That's the truth. (laughs) It's not always clear. And I sometimes target the wrong person. What's an example of targeting the wrong person, though? Yeah, I I was trained in New York and, you know, basically indie filmmaking and the director was God. That was it. And I didn't even know who this showrunner or writer was at all. And when I first got into television in Los Angeles, I thought that's what you did. And I remember television directors just being like, oh, my God. God, you're amazing. I love you. You're giving me so much attention. You're listening <laughs> yes, to me. <laughs> you do You do whatever I say. So directors on regular television shows, they come in as visitors and they're there to breathe new life into the material and find new energy and movement. But the vision goes through the whole show. It's the whole visual arc of the show. And I look and I love limited series because they're like long films to me. They have a beginning, middle and end. And so it is, as I was trained in New York, one visual arc. It's not this episode, we're doing this. This episode, we're doing that, though you can change it up. It all has to fit under one umbrella. 
And I think I have to really push that idea or create enough information for everyone to understand what the look of this show is going to be in every department. Yeah, definitely. I guess one thing I'm curious to hear from you is the relationship you have to the words on the page and how you take those words and then make them into something real and tangible that really goes towards the building of this world, especially. With Station Eleven, everything just appeared to me as I was reading it. And that's how you know you want to be part of a project. Mm. When you read something and you instantly get excited and you instantly start feeling and dreaming things. And, you know, you run to your bookcases and you get some, like, photographic references that inspire you. Like, I never had to work my way through any of those scripts. Like, sometimes I was like, what the fuck? But what the I fuck? Never... We're in a space station. <laughs> and I was like, yes, we're in a space station. And I'm like, are we really in a space station? Like, we, I, you know. Yes, we are. <laughs> and the fork in the road. And what does that mean? You know, sometimes, like, an image will come to me right away. But it's really through the words written on the page. It's your poetry, Patrick, I'm going to say Oh, it. come on. Aww. Well, I, I do write a lot of scene description, more than more than most. I think it's the novelist in me trying to tell the story. And I think directors and project designers need to strip away things I've done so they have their space a lot. Mm. I'm thinking Ruth of episode five in particular and the, the big moment of Clark's speech. The Ontario Science Center <laughs> has gone from a location scout to our airport. Uh, can I have your attention, please? Could you turn around? This is important. Sorry, this is important. Could you turn around? Um, This is the best thing that could have possibly happened. Okay, they left. They didn't invite you or me because they thought they were better than you. They thought they deserved to live and you didn't. They were in it for themselves. And the only problem with their plan is they were taken in by a janitorial con man. Can you talk about sort of doing what you do to make that scene be what it needed to be? Well, truly, I didn't know where that speech was going to be until um, Lucy saw the atrium. But I knew that the atrium, you know, needed to have a airport language of some sort, a visual language It said it was an airport. And you know that all these kind of regional airports always have things that are, like in Virginia, I think it's rocking chairs. We did the Michigander chairs. But also airports have architecture that spans, you know, 20, 40, 50 years sometimes. And this was a little bit earlier. This kind of swung back to uh, the 60s brutalist architecture. And then, you know, I felt like we needed a visual anchor above us because the space was so high. And um, Patrick, I think you definitely came up with the um, Edmund Fitzgerald. The legend lives on <laughs> from the Chippewa and down. <laughs> That's, that is the Edmund Fitzgerald that you hung. I don't know where that came from or how such things are made, but you did We it. did. We did that out of, um, I think, foam. And um, I mean, again, that was sort of last minute. And it was amazing that we, you know, could get lifts in this building. It had a really teeny tiny elevator, like really tiny. So, you know, to be able to get the lifts, to get that up there in that amount of time. And um, 
I think it's really marvelous. It's again, it's that sense of whimsy that, you know, trying to explain to the producers why we needed the Edmund Fitzgerald. <laughs> and all, all I can tell you is that we, we put <laughs> Wilmot's head when he's unconscious uh, on the overhead shot directly where the Edmund Fitzgerald sank in Lake Superior. Yeah. Uh, it's important to us. It was so important to us. And I can't even explain why, except it's legend. It's history. It's moving around the Great Lakes. And we would do these Zoom meetings where we would have our SketchUp models, our 3D models. And as they're moving in Zoom meetings, they're kind of falling apart because of the internet connection. And Claire asking me, what is that up there? (laughs) When she was looking at the Edmund Fitzgerald and just trying to explain to her that. What is that thing? (laughs) (laughs) It's the Edmund Fitzgerald, Claire. Obviously. (laughs) I should say, too, we're joking about the Edmund Fitzgerald. This is a a very famous folk song, I guess, from the 70s, for those of us from the the upper Middle West in the Great Lakes region. But the the Edmund Fitzgerald is a tanker that that sank in a tragedy that killed, uh, I think, about 20 sailors in, in the 70s when a storm came out of nowhere and sank a ship that should have been unsinkable. Yeah, it's sort of like the Titanic of the yeah. Great Lakes. Big storms come, big ships sink. <laughs> big ships sink. <laughs> and skeletal remains, like things remain. And I think that was kind of part of it for me, like not even thinking about it. Like mm. sometimes I just, Patrick says something, I'm just 100% on board and it becomes part of me and I don't really articulate why until afterwards. You're very pre-verbal, Ruth. I would say like all directors too <laughs> and you're a visual thinker. But what I think you grabbed onto was damage. And the show very much is about sifting through old damage. What can we use that's still here for us now? The wreckage from before can turn into something we build from. Yeah, and that's a very beautiful thing to kind of reflect on at this point in time. Don't want to be dire, but man, shit looks bleak. <laughs> There's some wreckage lying around. And, and I think the, the optimism of the show grows out of kind of like, look at this pile of shit. Look at this fucking disaster. Okay, I'm going to put my suit on and go in and find the thing that didn't break. Because we got to build something again out of this. There's value in here, but we got to go in. It's hard to go back in there because mm. uh, it hurts <laughs> in many ways. But it's worth it to go in. I think that's what artists do. They look around for what what comes from a, a bad old place and bring something beautiful back for us now. Definitely. Ruth, one thing I was curious about after you mentioned when I asked you about, you know, the relationship between the words on the page and your own work was, you know, sometimes the words on the page will strike inspiration within you and you'll run to your bookshelf and grab something down. With Station Eleven, if you're open to it, I'd be curious, where do you pull inspiration from, no matter how small, no matter how visual or not? I'm just very curious where you're fed as an artist. I would say almost always from uh, photography books, because great artistic photographers, they're kind of thinking outside of the box or not. Everything has a tone and a meaning behind the frame. Mm. And because that's what we're dealing with is frames. I think that's where I start. I looked at originally like Joel Sternfeld photographs. And also there was a photographer, Brian Ulrich. He did a lot of photographies of sort of like big box stores and empty consumerism 
without it being heavy handed, it would just be like in one photograph, it's just uh, in the back of a shop, a big like target or something, a huge dumpster full of hangers and nothing but hangers, just sort of like odd moments of excess that aren't very complicated. They're just simple one note ideas. And I think that was something that Hero and Patrick got excited about in our first meeting is that we weren't going to try and tell this and that and that and that and that, but just keep it to one moment of loneliness, I suppose. There was another artist I looked at, a photographer who did uh, photographs of abandoned satellites and uh, liftoff towers, but all around the world. And they just, you know, were left and abandoned. And the metal had a beautiful patina on it. And there were beautiful plants growing around it. But it wasn't like something you felt sad about. Like it wasn't like smashed windows and garbage all over the place. Hmm. Well, there's, yeah, there's some mystery to it, right? It's kind of like, what the fuck is that? Like if Alex walked up to it and tried to guess from before, what was that? That's the kind of place that you can't quite tell. You know, one of those rails that supports a rocket and then it's right. like a piece over the side. You can't, you don't know. And it was also that idea of scale and um, kind of mixing it up between, you know, where the airport was quite large, big box stores being empty is a feeling of scale that, you know, the emptiness is more powerful than the full, I suppose. Yeah, I find empty malls kind of creepy, to be honest. Um, oh, really creepy and beautiful. I mean, it's yeah. like an airport to me. I, love I mean, so abandoned much. things I've always had a little interest in. There's something very evocative about thinking about who walked through a place and all the things it was before it you see it abandoned and empty and I don't know, it's a very weird feeling, almost nostalgic I get for something I didn't even experience, if that makes sense. Oh, absolutely. That is a hardcore Station Eleven idea right there. And it, Yeah, I was feeling we it. We got to play in this space. Ruth and I were scouting gigantic oh, empty structures left right. and right. And the kid in me was sort of like, I want to run. Like when we got to the airport and that long, there's nothing there. And it's like, I just want to run down this thing. I don't know why, but there's some freedom inside of those spaces. It's creepy, but it's, there's something good in there too, I guess. And I think that's so much about what our world of station 11 is that, you know, somewhere it's all right. Like the abandoned runway. I did run down it. Probably you screaming did? and cha- oh yeah, <laughs> probably screaming at somebody for driving over the grass. Oh, um, you were but- working. <laughs> <laughs> but um, just having space and loneliness and emptiness, and I guess it's sort of like I don't know, positive dinosaurs, like seeing these <laughs> relics of what we used to think we need or what was part of our day-to-day life, you know, we'd stop in a fast food place or gas station or a box store of some sort and fill up a cart with something. And all that stopping, you know, it's just when I got home, actually, Patrick and I, I had to go to Costco for my husband. And just to see people with these gigantic carts filling them up to the top with, Fuck knows what. Costco, man. Costco's a science experiment. Or someone <laughs> th- that place you can just that watch. After station eleven negative, like taking away from what you need. What do you really need? Not that trampoline. <laughs> 
not that second 85 incher or you know 800 exactly. bags of, of uh, jelly beans or whatever and you, you start buy. walking and tossing <laughs> things in because you can oh yeah that impulse is really fascinating this desire for more and more and more but my final question for you is i'm very curious how did your vision change for the show from the inspiration stage to like actually scouting and finding locations and being in the real spaces you would need to bring together for the world of the show. So, uh, you know, there's an idea in the script and sometimes I can't put my mind around it until I actually get to a location. And I think that was, I'm going to say Pink Tree, Patrick, where, you know, um, which is the golf course or country club. and Which is a masterpiece, by the way. <laughs> the wallpaper, the, the rugs, the space and time you had to build that. This is episode four, which the viewers have seen. You made a world and we were very limited in terms of location and time and room. And our Ruth's department really was shining, to, I think, making Pink Train come alive. And we, we didn't even know why we wanted that huge curling room. We had to have that. And the space that we had for Pink Tree Interior was slightly limited in a way. And we had it for such a short amount of time because people thought they were going to get married again. But <laughs> when I showed Patrick the curling ring, I like literally said, you have to see this. Yeah. So right now, right now in, in our viewing, we've seen a flash, a very small glimpse of this space uh, in 104 when young Matilda is holding the baby. And the space is going to become very important in, in the next episode of the show. So it, it's bridging worlds again, connecting unconnected architectural spaces. That's where, where Ruth is making one thing out of many over and over again. And I can't even feel it when I watch the show now. Mm. We really stuck our feet in the mud for that one to hold on to that. And it was just also because at this country club that we were filming at, they were going to tear down this building. Like there's like three buildings that we filmed in that they're tearing down now. It's just, but it was getting full of the remains of golf equipment. So just having that kind of layering of things that were no longer functioning within this curling, that was what brought it all together for us. And we were like, let's just bring in more, you know, carts, golf carts and more of those um golf bag trolleys and just kind of the remains of golfing inside that curling auditorium, which then also helped us tie into our Lynx course. Like, because again, there are three separate locations, actually four separate locations. Well, it was a quarry. You made a golf course out of a quarry. <laughs> yes. Yes. That was our Lynx course. I was passionate about that. Ruth and I had a beautiful day just me and her, scouting became healing in shooting what, during COVID because you got to be outside, you got to be walking and together, talking, and it's a fun thing to go on a scout with your whole core group. And this day was just me and Ruth and I had escaped for six hours and we went and walked this quarry and kind of tried to see it together, how we would do it. But it was one of my favorite days Mine of too. the hundred <laughs> and some <laughs> that we were there. It was a healing day for sure. It's a day when like your friendship can take over too and you can just talk and be human again. A healing day on a show that I would describe as actually very healing to watch in its own way. It's lovely. I just want to say thank you so much, Ruth, for coming on. This has been such an enlightening, rich conversation to hear your perspective on the visual aspects of the world of this show. Well, thank you so much. It's been really fun. Oh, thank Thanks you. for coming, Ruth. 
Thanks. Nice see seeing you. you, Patrick. Bye, Angelica. Thank you. Thanks so much, Ruth, for coming on. I feel like I've really learned a lot about production design and what goes into making the world of a show like Station Eleven. Yeah, you really need someone like Ruth holding it all together uh, in a different way, especially when you're busy writing scenes and working on other stuff at the same time. Yeah, she's a badass. I really dug her vision and how she talked about just the breadth of her inspiration and what she pulls from. And also, she had a great sense of humor. She's a very kind, human, warm friend and also a bad motherfucker. Those are my favorite kind of dames. And that's all for this episode. Thanks, as always, to everyone who's listening. Don't forget to tune in next week when we call up Helen Wang, Station Eleven's head of costume design, and discuss everything happening in Episode 6, Survival is Insufficient. Station Eleven, the podcast, is a production of HBO Max and iHeartRadio and hosted by me, Patrick Somerville, and Angelica Jade Bastian. Our executive producer is Molly Sosha, with special thanks to Ethan Fixell. Our engineer extraordinaire is James Foster. This episode was written and researched by Kate Boss. If you liked what you heard, don't forget to rate and review Station Eleven, the podcast, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. And don't forget to subscribe or follow the podcast for free so you don't miss an episode. You can catch up on the latest episode of Station Eleven, the series, on HBO Max. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.